0: To the Lord of God in Judges three, twelve through thirty. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because many or because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites, the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it in his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people of Israel who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in, the cool of his, er, in his cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, Surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they went, and they waited until they were embarrassed. And when he did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Saraiah. When he arrived, he sounded the trump in the hill country of Ephraim, then the people of Israel went down from him with him from the hill country and he was their leader and he said to them follow after me for the Lord has given your enemies the Moabites into your hand so they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over and they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites all strong able-bodied men not a man escaped So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. I've been saying each week that the book
1: of Judges is a collection of true stories that's written with the intent to show you two things. It's like two wings on an airplane. This is me doing an airplane. Uh, It's written with the intent of showing you that you have a great need for a Savior, and that you have a great Savior for your need. That's the point of the book of Judges. And so as we go throughout the semester, that is going to be the thing that you're going to see over and over and over and over, and tonight's no exception. Before we get into uh, tonight, I wanted to set up uh, this passage in this particular way. I don't know if you have, maybe you have, maybe you haven't seen the TV show. It's called The Office. It's um, it's on Netflix. You can see it if you're unfamiliar. Um, But there's a character on the show named Andy Bernard who is a fun... Loving kind of goofy character. And on this particular episode, one night he goes home and he opens up his computer and he records himself singing all four part, all four acapella parts to the song Rockin' Robin. It's the old song. Rockin' Robin. tiddly Remember? So he records this and then he, he makes this recording and he sets it for his ringtone. So when he goes to the office the next day, he's showing everybody this song and of course, one time when he's not looking, Jim Halpert, the, the, the local office prankster, grabs his phone, hides it in the ceiling right above his cubicle, and proceeds to keep calling it. And so early on in the episode, it's playing, and so Andy hears it, but he doesn't know where it is, and he goes, Tuna. Can't find my cellular device, and he's looking all around for it, and at first it's fun, it's silly, it's a, it's a silly prank, but as the day goes on, and as Jim keeps calling it over and over, and he can't find it, finds it? He can't find it, as the day progresses, he gets increasingly irritated, increasingly frustrated to where he stands up at one point, and he says this. And I'm also sorry that a lot of people here for some reason think it's funny to steal someone's personal property and hide it from them. Here's a little news flash. It's not funny. In fact, it's pretty freaking unfunny. And he screams and he turns and he punches a hole in the drywall. And Jim Halpert, who you know, has, he has the phone up into his ear, his eyes get big and he instantly hangs up. Everybody in the office is disrupted, and they're staring at him. They're freaking out. And even Andy is a little surprised with his own behavior because he goes, that was an overreaction. <laughs> <laughs> and then he says, gonna hit the break room. A- anybody want anything? And he just tries to proceed like the day is normal, and it's not. It's totally messed up. Well, the reason I... Um, begin with that story is because I, it, it reminded me of the story that Camille just read, because um, what happened in that episode was that here's uh, Jim doing this thing which was felt fairly normal, but then something completely unexpected happened and, and totally disrupted the whole scene. And this story is completely... This is a disruptive, completely unexpected story. No one would have expected the story that we just read. Not even the original readers. I mean, there's a, there's a crazy left-handed assassin. Swords get lost in belly fat. The, the Bible talks about poop. And so this is, this is a gross, this is a disturbing, this is an unexpected uh, thing. But it's, it's making this big point that the God of the Bible really does blow up all of your expectations. Like, remember those, uh, you've seen those shirts or the the signs that say, well-behaved women seldom make history? And I I thought of that sign in relation to this passage, because it's kind of like God is is not being a well-behaved God in this passage. And, And in some ways, that's why he makes history, because he doesn't operate and behave in the ways in which you would expect a God to behave like. He blows up your categories and your expectations. So I want to look at two things with you tonight. Just two, because we got a game later. Um, So I shaved off the third point. Um, Two points. I want to look at um, unexpected suffering and unexpected salvation. Both of these, in this passage, both of these are really imperative for you to be able to understand. Unexpected suffering and unexpected salvation. Let's just look at one at a time. Here's the first. Unexpected suffering. Look at verse 12. Beginning, I'll just read it again. And the people of Israel again... Did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now I emphasize that word again because if, if if you've been with us through the book of Judges, you will have known by now there is this cycle of disobedience and deliverance that just repeats itself over and over and over. So when it says the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, it just saying, here we go again. They again rebel which means not just that they misbehaved if you've been with us it just means that they have they simply forgot the love of God and they started chasing and worshipping after other things so look at what happens verse 13 and 14 says God strengthens this Moabite king named Eglon and his army defeats the people of Israel and they suppress and uh, oppress and subject them to 18 years of kind of misery now for you and I, we read that and we're like, "Okay, I don't know any of these characters or things. This doesn't mean anything to us." But if you were if you were one of the original readers of this story, this would have sounded to you like an SNL skit. This this would have been ridiculous. And the reason why that is is because the Moabites, as a as a nation, as an army, these were total has-beens. Uh, at this point, they, these were like total losers. These were nobodies. These were scrubs. These were noobs. These were these were. These were the people earlier in the Old Testament that were scared of Israel when they were coming out of Egypt. So not only is this kind of like this scrub, ragtag, nobody army, but look at, look at, the, uh, look at the king. The king is named Eglon. Now, you all know you're Hebrew, but um, you know what Eglon means in Hebrew? I'll just remind you. Eglon in Hebrew means fat cow. Look at, um, look at verse 17. It just kind of makes the point. Eglon was a very fat man. Now, in ancient times, in ancient times, kings were not figureheads that just sat on the throne all day. Kings were like the, the, the strongest warrior of your army. They were like your starting quarterback. And this guy's like Job of the Hutt. <laughs> and, and so, the, the, here's how this story begins. It says, the fat cow king and his nation of junior varsity losers defeats God's chosen people. That's why it's like an SNL skit. I mean, this is this would be like the men's basketball team losing to some random intramural team from Palassippi State Community College. Right? It's like it's totally like this doesn't make any sense. This is totally unexpected, but here's what is here's what's even crazier. Look at uh, look at verse 12. God was the one that orchestrated this. God is the one that strengthened Eglon and his army to oppress and to take over the people of Israel. And it kind of raises this million dollar question of like, okay, why? Why would God do this? And really the bigger question is why in the world would God allow pain and suffering into their life in this kind of crazy unexpected way and and then related to us, why does God allow pain and suffering into our lives? And that is a massive question. That is such a big question we really could take the entire semester just trying to answer that question. There's a million Things that we could say about it, but I'm going to give you one answer, one response of many of what we could say about why God allows unexpected, crazy, uh, incomprehensible difficulty and pain into our lives sometimes. And here's how I want to set it up Um, I don't know if you've seen the TV show The Walking Dead. I don't know if anybody watches this show anymore. I, I quit once they brought in the guy with like the tiger next to him. But um, I quit. I, I quit. But if you're familiar with the show, you, you you don't need to know anything about the show in order to understand what I'm about to say. There there was this, uh, you know, it's a zombie apocalypse, and so you have these humans that are trying to survive. And at this particular season, they're living in this kind of walled-in city. But of course, every now and then they have to go outside of the walls to go out and go on runs and look for supplies. And so on one particular occasion, they go out and they. Look for supplies, and there's this guy, Nicholas, that um, goes out there and he makes some mistakes, and some people end up getting killed in the process. And so Glenn confronts Nicholas in this one scene and gets in his face and he says, That's on you. Their lives are on you. You are never going out there by yourself again. And Nicholas says, I've been protecting this place, helping to provide for it. You just got here. Let me try my best. Um, Theatrical interpretation of this. And so Glenn says, don't forget what I said. And Nicholas goes, are you threatening me? And Glenn goes, no. I'm saving you. That was pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So here's Nicholas. And he's like, you are threatening me. What you are saying to me, you are intending me harm. He is interpreting this conversation as you are intending me harm. And, and Glenn is saying, no, I'm actually trying to save you. Right now, this is my attempt to save your life. And so even though it looks scary, even though, here's the point. When we experience pain and difficulty, it is easy for us to have the same interpretive switch where it feels like God is in, trying to intend us harm. It feels like he's threatening us. It feels like he's trying to kill us sometimes. And God is saying, no, I'm actually trying to save you. This feels totally counterintuitive. This is why it's so unexpected, but this is my gift for you right now, to save you. Tim Keller, who's a famous author, pastor, writer, which is the same as author, he, um, <laughs> he has this great little quote I came across recently, and he said this. He said, it is only when you reach the very bottom When everything falls apart, when all your schemes and resources are broken and exhausted, that you are finally open to learning how to completely depend on God. As is often said, you never realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. You must lose your life to find your life. I think that is so insightful and it's been true of my experience because I get to hear so many of y'all's stories and you sit down with me, you sit down with our interns or our staff and you tell us stories, many of you, of how you came to know Jesus, how you became a Christian and I don't know one person's story that has ever said, my life was going amazing, I was thriving as a person and so I turned to Jesus and became a Christian most of the time, it is my life was unraveling. I had hit rock bottom. Everything was falling apart and I didn't have anything else to do. So I turned to Jesus because he was all that I had left. I mean, that's, my, that's my personal story. And so you see, you see this kind of principle that one of the reasons why God brings difficulty or, or pain into your life, because if he never did, then, then we would never need him. We would never turn to him because we already have everything. And so often he brings pain and difficulty into our life to draw our attention back to him. Uh, look at how this next, the, next, the very next verse goes. Look at verse 15. It says, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. You see the connection? I mean, their motives were still crazy out of whack. But what suffering and difficulty at least did in them was create some instinct to turn towards God. This is how God typically works in in these crazy, unexpected ways. He strips away everything that you want so that maybe you will finally turn to the one thing that you need, which is him. This is totally counterintuitive. And you hate what I'm about to say, but I think it's absolutely true. That one of the greatest threats to your spiritual well-being is comfort. One of the greatest threats to your spiritual well-being is, is comfort. It's, uh, it's complacency. I heard this quote from John Piper, who is, again, famous author, pastor, theologian guy. He said this quote, and, and I'll never really be able to forget it. He says this, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. The greatest threat to our hunger for God isn't us eating and drinking poison, it's, it's apple pie. What he means by that is that the greatest threats to your spiritual life aren't what you typically think it is. It's not porn, and it's not Coke, and it's not hooking up, although all those are definitely spiritual threats. But he says, really, the greatest spiritual threat is when you're so satisfied with everything that the world has to offer that you have no appetite for God because you're so satisfied with everything else. You've, you have no appetite for grace. You have no hunger for him because you're so content and so satisfied and numb with everything that the world has to offer. And so when you pray, God, I want you to show up in my life. God, I want to, I want to grow in my faith. I want to connect with you more. Don't be surprised if the way that God answers that prayer is for you to begin to feel disappointment and weakness and failure. I mean, don't you understand that's how God does it? It's totally counterintuitive, it's totally unexpected, but that's how he creates an appetite for him inside of you. Here's the thing is that your heart doesn't really have a capacity to love and to enjoy God unless it is first broken. And so often what God does, and it's again, we would never write the story this way, but what God so often does is he breaks us. <coughs> if the greatest threat to your spiritual life is comfort, then really the greatest catalyst for your spiritual well-being is suffering. C.S. Lewis said that uh, God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us in our pain. He says it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So, really, the next time that you think to yourself or you say out loud, if God really cared about me, he would not let this thing be happening in my life. If God really cared about me, he would not be letting this difficult thing happen. And I want to say, think again. Maybe the very reason why this painful thing is happening in your life is precisely because he cares about you. Maybe he is trying to break you so that you might be drawn closer into his heart. Again, this is unexpected. This is not a well behaving God. This is blowing up categories. But this is how God typically works. He introduces unexpected suffering so that we might turn to him. So that's the first thing unexpected suffering. But here's the second thing unexpected salvation. The way that the people of Israel get saved in the story is is just as crazy as how they got into the mess. When God hears their cries, look at verse 15. It says he raises up somebody to deliver them. It's this guy named Ehud, which again is somebody that nobody would have ever seen coming. Of all the people to deliver Israel, Ehud was the least likely, and here's why. Uh, In verse 15, it says that Ehud was from the tribe of Benjamin. Again, pop quiz on your Hebrew, but um, Benjamin in Hebrew means son of my right hand. But then right after that, it says, and Ehud was left-handed. So here's how Ehud gets introduced. Let's meet Ehud, son of my right hand, the left-handed man. Now, right hand in this particular context uh, meant power and prestige, I mean, we use it in our, I mean, this is kind of the same way we mean it in our damage. I mean, this is why Hamilton wanted to be Washington's right-hand man, because it was this symbol of strength and status, and you're close to the, to the man and everything. So right hand meant power and strength, and actually in the, in, the, in the original Hebrew, it doesn't say that he was left-handed, it says that his right hand was bound, Meaning he had no use of his right hand. He could only use his left hand because commentators, commentators think that it was because his right hand was either um, deformed or it was injured or, or crippled in some way. And so here is this man that in the eyes of the world was weak, he was useless, he was worthless. I mean, this this would be the guy that uh, in the eyes of the world, nobody would pick for their intramural team. No one would pick when, when divvying up the squad. Nobody... Everybody would overlook this guy, and this is the guy, this weak, useless man that God says, you're going to be the deliverer. And it's not just this unexpected savior. The way in which this guy saves his people is bananas. So let's keep going with the story. Um, Ehud comes with this group of people to offer this tribute to Eglon, the fat cow king, which is basically like a, a tax. And so in verse 19, he tells Eglon, he's got a secret message for him. And so because Eglon sees this guy and he's, he's this handicapped man, it's, he seems like he's not a threat. He, he poses no threat, he's, he's safe. And so he allows for this guy to have a private audience in his, in his kind of private chambers. Now, what you know earlier in the story is that Ehud has a sword, a little dagger strapped to his right thigh. Which shows you this was, a, this was a premeditated assassination plot because most people were right handed, so they would draw their swords from their left thigh. But because Dude's left handed, he's drawing a sword from his right thigh. You see how this works? But everybody, every Old Testament scholar says for security purposes, everybody would have padded down his right thigh to make sure there's no sword there. Nobody would have ever thought to look at his right thigh. So he essentially gets through security checkpoint with a concealed weapon. And now he's in the inner ring, in the inner chamber with the fat cow king. And here is Ehud. And he says to the king, now I have a message from God for you. This is in verse 20. So now that we're talking about God, Ehud stands up to show respect for this divine message that's coming, or Eglon does. And Ehud pulls out his dagger. And he rushes this king and he plunges it into his gut. And it says that the fat closes in over the handle of the dagger. Like he loses the sword in the guy. And I would imagine there's like this disturbing suction sound that happens (laughs) as the fat kind of closes in over it. So Eglon, the fat cow king, has now this sword inside of him, and he collapses to the ground. And then here's what the Bible says next. And the dung came out. <laughs> it's just in the Bible that uh, the dung came out. Now, one of, the, one of the commentators that I was reading to study for this Tried to sanitize the story because it's a little gross. And here's how they tried to sanitize it. I thought this was funny. It says, uh, when Eglon fell to the ground and expired, his bowels relaxed and discharged their contents. (laughs) Now, you can't really clean this up. I mean, this is gross. This is like Quentin Tarantino, Game of Thrones. Like, this is, this is really gross and disturbing. And here's the thing. That's the point. The point is that this is supposed to be totally crazy, totally unexpected. People are not supposed to be saved like this. But the story actually gets funnier. Um, in verse 23, it says that Ehud escapes through the porch, Now, nobody knows what that word porch means. It's a weird kind of Hebrew word, but some scholars think that it means it's another word for toilet or sewer system. So some people think maybe he he escaped this private little room by like doing the Shawshank Redemption thing and like crawling through the sewers, disgusting, gross sewers. I don't know, but maybe that's how he escaped. But what's really funny is in verse 24, because the servants, all the king's servants are on the other side of the door. They don't know that dude has passed out, but they can smell The smell. And so they think, okay, King is just kind of taking care of business in there. And then look at verse 25. It says, And they waited until they were embarrassed. I mean, that's a bad day when other people are embarrassed for you (laughs) because you're taking so long. They're like, He is settling in over there. (laughs) He is on Instagram. And, um, they eventually get tired of waiting, and they open up the door, they unlock it, and there they see their king on the ground, a corpse of blood and human yuck, and there he is. And that was the moment that kind of jump-started Israel's salvation. It says at the very end, verse 30, Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Here's the point. This is not who should be saving Israel, and this is not how Israel should be saved. This is, this is a totally unexpected salvation. This is crazy. But here's the thing. This typically is how God does what he does. Typically, God saves in the most unexpected ways. And you know this is true because centuries later, when God would send the true Savior, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, he sends somebody that totally explodes all of your categories. Because um, you and I would expect for a savior, if a savior is gonna show up, they're gonna show up with power and they're gonna show up with fanfare and Jesus is born in a refugee family in some obscure, no-name podunk village. We would expect the savior to show up with what in a castle with a silver spoon in his mouth and here's a savior who is born in poverty, who is born uh, in essentially a a cow's feeding trough, we would expect for a, uh, a savior to show up as a warrior with strength and power and Jesus shows up as a servant with weakness and humility. This is not the savior that we would expect. And then think about the way in which Jesus saves us. Salvation, we think, tends to come when you conquer your enemies. And Jesus says, I'm going to let my enemies conquer me. That's crazy. We think the way, that you, the way that you save people is that you win by using your power, right? And Jesus says, no, I'm going to show up and I'm going to lose and give away all of my power. This doesn't make any sense. Jesus was despised, rejected, mocked, insulted, beaten, bound, tortured, and executed. And this is God's strategy, for saving the world. It's like crazy, it's totally inconceivable. Why does this matter? Here's why this matters. Every other religion, every other philosophy, every other perspective and worldview says to you, what you need is you need some tips, you need some advice, you need some guidance, you need some discipline, and if you work hard enough, if you believe these things, if you worship these gods, if you're devoted to these practices, then you can you can be saved. You can save yourself. You don't need somebody to die for you. That's crazy. What you need is you need education. You need you need effort, you need willpower. You need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's why no other religion, no other philosophy, no other perspective has a cross at the center of it. But what if you were what if you were worse off than you realized? What if you really did have a great need for a savior? And that no amount of rules or discipline or effort could do anything to actually save you. Think about this. I heard this story a number of years ago. Um, this is a news story. I think I shared this with you before. But this was a story in Arizona. There was a woman walking with her two-year-old daughter and her dog. And they were walking around the neighborhood or whatever. And the dog runs on ahead. And the little two-year-old girl runs after the dog and kind of gets separated from their mom. and And the little girl steps on this plastic cover on the ground which ends up kind of giving away or it's a lid that kind of flips and there's this pit underneath and so she falls into this hole which ended up being a septic tank. So here's this two-year-old girl that, gets, that sinks into a, a, a pit of human sewage, thick, muddy, soupy, gross, disgusting sewage and she and she's, can't swim out. And that's what the Bible says is a picture of us. That here we are sinking in the sewage of our own sin. And you can throw in an instruction manual on how to swim to that girl, but it's not gonna help her. You can shout instructions, try harder, pull yourself up. You can swim out. You've got this. Just try harder, do enough. You need some more New Year's resolutions. You need some more discipline. And none of that is gonna work. None of that is gonna save this person if they really are sinking in this pit. So here's how that particular uh, story ends. The mom starts screaming, and there's this guy nearby who hears her, and so he runs over to her. His name is Henry Ricketts. He had just been released from prison two weeks before this moment. So here you have this ex-con, and you have this vulnerable, hysterical mother, and here's this pit in the ground with, as far as he could tell, no sign of life in it. And so what he does is he jumps headfirst into the pit. Instantly comes up coughing and gagging because he inhaled and swallowed some of the sewage on his way down. And so he coughs, he's choking, he recovers himself, and he goes back down. And he's swimming around, and he's fishing around, trying to find the girl. After a few minutes, comes up, doesn't have her. By this point, there was this group of people that has formed around this hole in the ground. There's this other guy nearby, he now jumps into the septic tank. And it says that people grab both of his ankles and they're like dipping him into the sewage tank as he's rummaging around. They pull him up for air. Four minutes go by. And he eventually pulls out the body of this lifeless girl and they pull her, put her onto the um, sidewalk. And there was a nurse in the um, crowd. There's this woman. And so she starts administering CPR and mouth to mouth. Now think about mouth to mouth. Here's this little girl with her face covered in Death. And she puts her mouth on her. And she she does the she does the thing, and eventually the little girl starts coughing and she's revived and she comes back to life. Now that's an amazing story. But here's the thing: if that girl is gonna be saved, then the inconceivable has to happen. Somebody's gonna have to go in after her. Somebody's gonna have to get messy. Somebody's gonna have to have filth on their face if we're going to save this girl. Here's this unexpected salvation. Here's this, the king of the universe who becomes a homeless peasant and he jumps into our filth and he gets covered in it. And on the cross, he drowns in it so that you and I might be pulled out and brought to life. That's why Christianity, at the center of it, is a cross. Because you have a great need for a savior, but you have a great savior for your need. One who was willing to enter into the mess and into the yuck to demonstrate his love for you. He knew that the only way to capture your heart was to demonstrate his love for you in such a way that you would see God doing the inconceivable Jumping on a messy, bloody cross for his enemies in order to rescue them. When you see that, when you see the love of God, when you see the grace of God, that is what begins to activate life in you. What is the whole? If you step back and look at this whole story, what is the point? Unexpected suffering. God allows pain and suffering into your life. Uh, Unexpected salvation. You have this. This. uh, counterintuitive, you never would have saw this coming savior dying for you. You know what the point, the theme of both of these together is? You know what the big agenda is? God wants you. That's the point. He brings suffering into your life so that you might wake up and turn to him so that he might be with you. He dies for you so that he might be with you. You're the point. You're the treasure. You're the one that he loves, so much so that he's willing to do the inconceivable, put himself on a cross for people like you and me. Here's the last thing I'll say. I, I know this story is gross and it's disturbing, and in some ways, we kind of haven't seen anything yet. Like, it's only going to get worse. But here's what I. This is this my hope, is that as you come through this semester in RUF with us, my hope is that you would, you would finish this semester and you would know that Christianity is not some sappy, sugary, sweet, sanitized fairy tale for naive people that are just trying to be nice and good. It's messy. It's bloody because we are messy. There's sewage and there's mess, and yet you have a God who is willing to enter into the mess himself out of unexpected and inconceivable love for us. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you love us so much that you would be willing to give yourself, to give your son on our behalf. People that have rejected you, people that have rebelled against you, again, doing evil in your sight. And yet you keep coming after us. You keep suffering for us. You keep humbling yourself for us. And I pray that that would electroshock our hearts
0: into faith and into worship. we pray all this in Jesus' name.